Turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 24, starting there this morning, and we will read through the first paragraph of chapter 2. Before I I get to that, though, um, David was listing off the things that he is involved in in this church. Um, Large part because we're going to be talking about ministry this morning from this passage. I, I love David and Brent. Uh, David is um, in age the oldest elder that we have, but he is an incredible example of what it looks like to use your retirement years in a way that um, he fills up his days. Uh, I'll call David, and he'll be going from person to person in a particular day, very doing various things. I know this week he actually was on his way to visit somebody else when an emergency came up with somebody else, and he went to serve and love on them. Uh, this is a, a man who pastors and shepherds faithfully. And this, after many years... Uh, he talked about being a, a silent servant, and so he's, this is kind of going against his prayer request, right? I keep uh, bringing him up before you to laud him. But uh, many years, uh, David also served as our treasurer at this church. Uh, when he became the treasurer, in many ways, the church was in significant trouble financially. Uh, and the God used David and his order. Um, he, he recently uh, moved off that as he's taken off so many other ministry roles, and Henry Dent has become the treasurer here. But David has done enormous work and labor uh, behind the scenes uh, for our church. So as you see him, man, can you tell, tell him how grateful you are for him. All right, Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, as we continue our series and walk through this letter of Paul to the church at Colossae, we've come out of verses 15 to 23, this great description and seemingly a psalm or a poem of the greatness of Jesus Christ and his supremacy. And now Paul comes out of that and begins to describe his ministry to the Colossian church, even though despite the fact that he's never met them. So picking up in verse 24, hear God's word. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, and of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. This is in chapter 2 now. For I have for you and for those that lay to see it and for all who have not seen me face to face. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body... Yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. This ends the reading of God's holy and infallible word to us. This is a passage um, about ministry. From beginning to end, this is what Paul is talking about as his ministry on their behalf. This passage tells us first about the mission of ministry. This is your outline, by the way. The goal of ministry the cost of ministry, and the power for ministry. 
the mission, the goal, the cost, and the power for ministry. I'm going to focus this morning primarily and almost entirely on verses 24 through 29, but I think the same things that are given there are given and reiterated again in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2. And I want to apply this morning in two different directions as we bring out and draw out different themes and points from this passage. I want to apply these truths in two different directions in regards to ministry. First is this, is that you would see and appreciate those who have engaged in ministry to you over the years. And second, that in walking through the nature and sacrifice of ministry, that you would see that this is to what you are called as well. That what Paul is giving to the Colossian church here and has given to many people throughout his ministry all over the known Roman world at that time is called ministry, and you are called to that same ministry as well. Ministry is not for the paid professional. It is not for the uber spiritual. It is for every Christian. It says this in Colossians 3.16, later on in this very letter, Paul says that the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. It is the same verbiage and words used here, teaching and admonishing or warning and wisdom, and it's to what we are to do to one another. This is not simply the call of me as the pastor or for the elders as you're going to meet over the coming weeks, but this is the call of every one of us to, to care for one another, to teach one another, to warn one another, to call one another to righteousness. So growth and maturity in Christ is the responsibility of every believer on behalf of every other believer. Therefore, as you, as, and I was talking about this with our membership class a couple weeks ago, as you involve yourself in our church, as you get involved in community groups, you are to use your gifts in the way in this church to be involved in the disciple-making of other people here. I value greatly those who give their time on Sunday mornings to teach our kids. You are joining with me in discipling my children. It is a community project. God has designed the church to do this together. And so, therefore, you've got to stay in community and you've got to be a part of community. So, we are called to be a part of this ministry. And so, let's see what Paul tells us in this four, these few nine or ten verses here this morning about the nature of ministry for us. We'll begin with the mission, the very core of what ministry is. What is its mission? Verse 25 through 27, I think, give us the very core nature of the mission of this ministry is. And it's this. I became a minister, Paul says, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. And here's the significant point. To make... The word of God fully known. He goes on to describe what that is. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God has chosen to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. At the core of what ministry is as a Christian, it is to make known the word of God. And to understand this and what he goes on to describe about that, that ministry of making known the word of God, he knows the word he says, fully known. That there is a time and a place that Paul is adding to the scriptures of sorts here. That they, these people would have had the Old Testament scriptures. It was the word of God indeed. But he is making, there is a fullness that is being made known, known to them. Something beyond what they knew before. And that is what he's coming to the Colossians and teaching them. 
And what he says is, is there is a mystery. There are things that they have learned in the past, but there are some things that have not been revealed to them yet, and that Paul sees it as the core of his ministry to make known those things that have yet to be made known until Jesus. There is something missing in the revelation of the Old Testament. There is things pointed to. There were veils and or shadows of things to come. But Paul is saying now he has the great call, the great ministry, and we get to join him in this, is to make known the mystery that has been hidden for ages and generations but has now been revealed. Now, what is that mystery? Verse 27, we'll pick up there. And what it means to make known God's word. To them God chose to make known how great among you are the Gentiles are the riches, the glory of this mystery. And what is that mystery? Christ in you. In, in multiple places in the New Testament, Paul talks about this word, uses this word mystery. A very odd word when you're trying to make things clear. Mystery. That there has been a mystery going on throughout the Old Testament. There will be things that we have been longing to know. If you read a mystery novel, as you read through that novel, you know there are, these, there are facts and things that the detectives are coming across and that they're discovering, and you're trying to put the pieces together, but there is something until the author reveals to you what is that key point, that key bit of information upon which everything hinges, it is a mystery to you. There is something that has been missing, and and what Paul talks about here with this mystery has two aspects to it, and one aspect, interestingly enough, is ethnic, and the other aspect is spiritual. See, Paul's view of history is a view that's seen through God's revelation. Not through the way that we often see history, which is human or man-centered. Paul sees history in terms of how God is revealing himself and redeeming this world. And so he looks back at the Old Testament, the ages that have passed, and he sees that God comes and enters into a broken world. He intervenes and calls out for himself a special people, a man named Abraham. And he says, I'm going to redeem you, and I'm going to make you a blessing to all the nations. And that man, Abraham, his family becomes a great nation. And so they're there, and then they're enslaved, and they have to be saved from slavery through the Exodus. And God promises that he's going to bring them through the wilderness into a land of promise. And they're going to have sacrifices and all these things in this temple worship in order to come to know this God. And he reveals himself to them over and over and over again. But it's in these veiled ways. There's still problems and issues going on in the Old Testament. You see, he has made this covenant with his people, with the people of Israel. And when this covenant, this relationship, these promises back and forth, he promises to bless them if they will obey him, but they get cursings if they disobey. See, the covenant with God comes with blessings and cursings. And so when they obey him, there's great blessings for the people of Israel. But more often than not, they don't obey him. And so what we find is the people of Israel are constantly sent into exile. And then they repent and God brings them out of exile. And then they disobey or they're sent into exile again. And what the Old Testament prophets are constantly looking for is they're looking for these words of promise in the Old Testament that are saying that one day God will do something. They're not sure what it is, but God's going to do something to make sure that all we receive is no longer cursings, but blessings only. That's what they've been waiting for. How is it it that we are not going to receive all the cursings of the covenants? How are we going to receive these blessings? We can't seem to obey what says it and communicates to us in these veiled terms in Ezekiel 36. And one of these times when Israel is in great disobedience before the Lord, and one of these sweet promises 
It says this in Ezekiel 36, verses 22 through 27. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which was profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle you with clean water and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. Now that's lofty, wonderful language. That's a promise of what God is going to do, but it's a veiled promise. Does it make any people in Ezekiel listening going, he's going to give us new hearts? Take hearts of stone and turn them into flesh? How is he going to do that? We finally come back to our point this morning. The mystery is, how is he going to change our hearts so that we obey him finally? How are we, what is he going to do in this world that's going to be a, the means by which we only get the blessings of the covenant and not the cursings of the covenant? And here's what Paul's answer is in the gospel is, not only is he going to send Jesus into this world, the supreme creator of all things, but he's going to come in and he's going to be the absolute, perfectly sufficient reconciler for you so that you no longer receive the cursings, but you only receive the blessings of the covenants. That's part of the mystery that's been revealed. But not only that, but this whole passage in Ezekiel about the new heart and this new heart of flesh, how are we going to get that? He says, Christ is going to enter into your very heart and change you from the inside out. You see, the Old Testament, what they viewed all of religious life and the way they viewed all of their life, and they viewed it from the outside in. This is what religion is. That if I will just change my life outside, if I will just be a certain way, then the inside of me, my heart will change. But the gospel is you cannot do that. The only way you'll be changed, the only way you can be made right before God, the only way you'll have a new heart is that Christ has to enter in you by the power of his spirit and give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart. This is the mystery that has been made known. How are you going to be changed? Christ is going to enter in you and change you from the inside out. Now, this beautiful truth, the means by which God's going to change us, that it's not going to be by our own power and energy and ability to, to change our lives ourselves, but it's going to be Christ working in us and through us. That has radical paradigm shift for the way we view one another. See, the way the Old Testament Israel would have viewed themselves is that God chose us, and it was based upon and centered upon their ethnicity. We are Israelites, we are God's called and chosen people, and then everybody else are the Gentiles. They are pagans and separated from God. But the gospel has flipped this paradigm upside down because what has he done? It's taken that it's no longer the outside in, it's the inside out. Therefore, it doesn't matter what's on the outside. It doesn't matter that you're a Gentile. And so the two mysteries that are revealed here is that the mystery first is that the spiritually one is that Christ is going to change us and move us and give us new hearts by entering into our lives. But then when he does so, he changes the paradigm of how we look at one another. So that it says this in Ephesians 3, 4 through 6. When you read this, you can perceive my insight, Paul says, into the mystery of Christ. Same language here. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has been made revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. 
This mystery, and here's what the mystery is in Ephesians, is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This means that the mystery of God is that every man, woman, and child can be changed, and it doesn't matter your ethnicity. This is not passed from down through physical DNA. This is a spiritual DNA that is passed down. And those who have received this, those who get Christ inside of them, whether Jew or Gentile, to them they receive the hope of glory. Christ living in you is the grounding, it is the foundation, the fundamental reason why you will be in heaven. It is the first fruits of the divine glory that you will experience one day. Christ is our hope of glory, and in fact, Christ will be the thing that we receive in glory. What you will experience for the rest of your life in heaven will be to know the glory is who Jesus is. Therefore, it means this, that forgiveness of sins is awesome. Justification is awesome. Made right before God is awesome. Your adoption as sons and daughters is great and awesome. But it is all a means of bringing you home to where you get to experience the glory of Christ Jesus. This is your hope. Period. The glory and joy and heart of ministry, therefore, is to make... Christ Jesus known through his word in a ministry to Christians that constantly reminds them the hope they have in Christ Jesus. The chief desire of this minister, of any godly Bible-believing minister, is that you would know and enjoy the gospel of Jesus Christ. That that would be the high point and epic of your life. That everything else would be subservient to it. There's a great story of an Englishman who has a visitor showing up. This Englishman is very wealthy, and he has a visitor show up, and he's walking this man about his grand estate, and he, they come to various high points and places on the estate, and he, he looks out over it. At one point, he looks out over the farm. He says, Mr. Visitor, do you see this great grand farm with all these cattle and sheep? It's all mine. And then he goes up to another place, and he looks down upon his great mansion, and he says, do you see that grand mansion down there? That is my home. And his visitor looks to him and says, yes, yes, but you see that tiny little poor village over there? The poorest woman in that village, she is wealthier and has more than all of these things. You know why? Because Christ is hers. The desire of any minister is for you to say that. That I may be impoverished in this world, I may have no barns, and I may have no farms or houses or riches, but I and wealthy beyond imagination because Christ Jesus is in me. He is mine and I am his. That's my desire for you. Is that the core of your ministry to one another? Or is it something else? Are we giving something short in our ministries to our children and to our co-workers and to the people of this city, something short of Jesus? Are we giving them right living Something that they can cling to for this life, a good life now, your best life today. Are we giving them Christ Jesus who is their life eternal? That's the mission of ministry, but when, there's a goal as well in that. It's the second thing we see that Paul gives us here, verse 28. The goal of ministry, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. What is the goal of ministry? To present everyone mature in Christ. The, the, the vision that Paul has here is an eschatological one. 
I know that's a big 50 cent word, but this is a vision that he sees at the end of all things, that we will present you like Christ presents us to God in all of our beauty and our holiness, sanctified through the ages, presents us to God as his beautiful brides. And we are involved in that process for one another, to present one another blameless before God at the end of all time. And what does it mean to be mature? Well, in human language, we talk about that with children, right? That you would grow up to maturity. But when you're young, you feed on milk, but you grow up to strength, to the full height and width and breadth of who you're supposed to be. But in more pointedly, that word in Greek actually means perfect. To present you as perfect before the words. This is the goal of Christian maturity. Not just to present you as okay. Not simply to present you as better than your neighbors, but to present you as perfect. Now, how do you lead people to Christian maturity, to Christian perfection, nonetheless? What does it say there in verse 28? Begins, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. There are two fundamentals of ministry here. You know fundamentals? Tim Duncan. You like Tim Duncan? I like Tim Duncan. He's a nice guy. You know what his nickname is? The Big Fundamental. He is not extravagant in a league in the NBA where there are incredible athletes. He's a great athlete, but in that world, he is not known for being the greatest athlete. But over the years, he has won five championships and has been known to become one of the greatest big men of all time. Was it because he was always super spectacular? No. He's almost never been considered the best player in the league. But over the course of a lifetime of playing, he is now considered one of the greatest of all time. He has surpassed even those who were greater than him in single years because he has simply done the fundamental things over and over and over and over again. And that has brought him five championships. That's the kind of men and women we want to be as Christians. And here are the two fundamental aspects of ministry. First is this, proclaim Christ. Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim. You unpack the person and work and lordship of Jesus Christ. This is the fundamental aspect of ministry. You don't leave Jesus and move on to quote-unquote deeper things. For what is deeper than the second person of the Trinity? He is God. He is divine. And in fact, this is what we're going to do in heaven as we will spend the rest of our eternal lives swimming in the ocean of the beautiful nature of his character. We will be set free from the sinfulness of who we are. The veil will be removed, so all we get to do for all of eternity is come to a greater and deeper appreciation of who he is. Will you start now in that appreciation and your growth as a Christian? One pastor has put it this way, the road to Christian maturity does not take you beyond Jesus, but it takes you all the more deeply into Jesus. That's the first fundamental, but the second fundamental is this, that you apply the person and work of Christ to every aspect of your life. I said this in my first sermon in this book. Knowing Jesus changes some things, a few things, your life just on Sunday. No, knowing Jesus changes everything. There's a book by Eugene Peterson that is titled Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. The whole point of it is to reveal how Christ is at work in all places in this universe and in our lives. This is the truth for us as well. And frankly, this is what Christian worldview is. Some of you parents want us to deal with Christian worldview. 
Often here in the Christian circles and Christian education, this is what it's all about, giving our children the Christian worldview. Well, let me tell you something. We can give them all sorts of models and behaviors, and we can critique culture, and we can critique our own lives, and we can critique movies and art, but that's all wonderful and hunky-dory. But if we've left Jesus off of it, we've forgotten the glasses that we're to use in order to see the world rightly. You want to give your children a right worldview, then you've got to give them Jesus first and foremost. But then you've got to take and start with Jesus and reapply and re- help them see life through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That their identity is no longer who they are, even in your family, as a male or a female, as black or white, as Asian or African, but their identity is in Christ Jesus. And how do you apply that to your life today? That that is the beginning of all wisdom. And this proclaiming Christ comes with two aspects to it. There's a negative aspect or a away from aspect and an unto or positive aspect. What does he say here? Warning and teaching. The warning aspect. Preaching Christ involves a warning note, which involves exposing wrong thinking, wrong desires, and yes, even wrong behaviors. Where we call out these things, calling out what is bad with the gospel. This is what Paul does to Peter. Peter in Galatians is struggling with racism. The Judaizers have come and he won't even eat because he wants to impress the cool Jewish kids in the room. He won't even eat with the Gentiles anymore. And Paul doesn't say, hey, racism is bad, Peter. No, he says, you're not living in line with the gospel. He sees the bad behavior, the racism, and he corrects it by saying you have to correct it like your chiropractor corrects your spine. You've got to bring your life back in line with the gospel. That the gospel says there is now no longer Jew or Gentile. There is only Christ and our unity and our identity is found in him. So we call one another away from that and call us back to the gospel. Then there's a positive approach to it as well. This is what wisdom is. Teaching with all wisdom. Calling us unto things. Calling us to good things. So calling us away from certain sins and bad desires and bad behaviors and wrong thinking and calling us to right thinking, to right doing, to right desiring. This is what counseling is. It is this back and forth. This is what discipleship does. This is what caring for one another does. And parents, isn't this what you do ad nauseum? These are proclaiming verbs that we're using here. Admonishing or warning is a proclaiming word. Teaching, a proclaiming word. We are going to be doing this. And you know what? What we are doing in all of these things and wanting to present each one of us perfect before the Lord and in teaching one another is an activity that we're going to be doing for all of eternity. Did you know they're still going to be teaching in in heaven? Isaiah 2, 2 and 3, it says this. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Right? This is end of times language. And shall be lifted up above the hills and the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. If in Zion, at the end of all days, Jesus, the God, is going to be teaching from the great mount in Jerusalem, I think it's good enough for us today. And the means by which we will present one another as mature and as growing believers is we must be word-centered people who constantly bring to one another the word of God and apply it to our lives, calling one another away from evil deeds and calling us unto righteousness. One final point here I want you to see about the goal of ministry, and that's the scope of our maturity, of the maturity. 
Three times in verse 28, Paul uses the term everyone. We are warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Now, I'm not going to dive into it, but I think contextually he is speaking to Christians. That the goal and the desire in the Colossian church is to present every believer, every person who is in the church to the Lord as perfect and blameless at the end of all things. Now, why hammer away at that, though? This is the other broader context of the book. If I've, and I've talked about this almost every week, alluded to this. But there are teachers who have entered into the church of Colossae, and they're saying that there is a special knowledge that you need to have. There's a fullness, which is why Peter or Paul consistently uses that word. There's a mystery. There's mysterious knowledge that you need to get a hold of and know. And if you'll just add these things to Christ Jesus, and then you'll be a special breed of Christian who will be truly mature. But here's what Paul is saying, is that we don't need any extra things besides Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We simply need more of it applied to our life. That means that Christian maturity is for Christian Joe Schmo and Mrs. Schmo. It is for run-of-the-mill, everyday, struggling, hard-lifed Christian. That they can become mature. Christian maturity is not the playground for snooty intellectual Christians who spend all their time in big and deep and heavy theological books or for those who get to spend all of their time in worship all the time. But that's what all they're about. It is not simply for the Christian professionals. It is for every person. We are all to be made mature in Christ Jesus because we have the means of maturity. And that is Christ Jesus. So the goal of ministry is to present everyone as perfect, completely mature before the Lord. But if God is going to present us as perfect, why all the work now? Right? Isn't this going to be Jesus' work in the end? He's the one who sanctifies us. He's the one who's made us righteous and holy before God's sight. Isn't that a done deal? Yes, that's true. But Paul says he doesn't make a dichotomy between what Jesus is doing and what's happening in our lives now. He says, because Jesus is going to make you perfect, work to that end right now. Because you are seen as righteous in God's sight, grow more and more into that truth and that promise for your life. And the call here from Paul and the example of Paul is to work really, really hard at this. That ministry is the guts of the Christian life. To pour out your soul into this. And here's the third thing we see this morning is the cost of ministry that Paul shows us. Is that there will be a great cost. Verse 24, 29, and then verse 1 of chapter 2. Let me read those. And I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. Verse 29. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And then verse 1 of chapter 2, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. When Paul writes this letter, he is sitting in a jail cell. He is a man who is suffering and expending his life in order for people who he's never even met to know Jesus. Pagans in Colossae is who he wants to grow into maturity. Now, real quickly, before I jump into this anymore, let me deal with the pink elephant in the room from this passage. He says there, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. And that causes us some distress, some spiritual heartburn. Does that mean there is something lacking in the work of Christ on the cross? Let me be very clear that this text is not saying that. That Paul is not saying that Christ's work on the cross was insufficient in some way. 
There are several reasons for saying that. One, because the entirety of the New Testament speaks otherwise. Over and over and over again, Paul and other places have talked about how the Christ's work on the cross has won for us secure and eternal redemption. His work on the cross is perfect and it's sufficient. That's actually what the first 23 verses of Colossians is all about. The sufficiency of Christ's work. Not only that, but Jesus on the cross said what? It is mostly done, somewhat done. No, it is finished, 100% done. Third, every other New Testament author says the same thing as Paul, that it's done. If you go to Hebrews, six times it refers to the fact of the sufficiency of Christ's work. But finally, this word translated afflictions is never used in the New Testament to speak of Christ's redemptive work. Never. We think that sounds like it should refer to the cross, but it never does actually refer to Christ's cross. So what does it mean for Paul to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? You can go grab some commentaries and dive into the the nitty-gritty of this and the various uh, ways in which people try to understand what he's saying here. But here's what I think it is, and that is simply this, that Paul's suffering complete Christ's afflictions not by adding to the work of Christ's sacrifice, but by extending them to the people who've yet to enjoy Christ's sacrifice. He doesn't add to the work of Christ, but he extends the work of Christ to people. What is lacking in the afflictions of Christ is not that they're deficient in the work, in that they couldn't cover our sins, but what is lacking is that the infinite value of Christ's afflictions have not been applied to us until we have heard of the the gospel and what Jesus has done. Paul uses the same language in talking about the Philippian church in chapter 2 of Philippians, where the Philippian church, when Paul is in great need, they take up a great offering and they send it to Paul. And he says this, and, in, and now he's about to, they send it via Epaphroditus. And he's about to send Epaphroditus back to them. And let me pick up, pick up in verse 29. So receive him, says, receive Epaphroditus back in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. It's the same language that Paul uses here in Colossians 1. And what is lacking in their service is they have done everything they have sacrificed. They've done everything that is necessary. They've poured forth all their gifts for Paul to receive this gift. But the only thing that was lacking was for someone to deliver it to him. This is why Paul says in Romans 10 verses 12 through 15 that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. He is the delivery boy of the message of the gospel that is applied to the hearts of the people of Colossae. To fill up what is lacking in Christ's Sacrifice is to be the messenger and deliverer of that message, of what Christ has done. So Paul rejoices in the fact that he gets to be used by God to apply the work of Christ Jesus to their lives. Let me apply this in two different ways to you. One, are you deeply, deeply grateful for those who have brought the word of God to you? None of you, none of you, none of you have grown one iota if it wasn't for somebody bringing the gospel into your life. Not one bit. You would have remained completely running from Jesus. For many of you, perhaps most of you, it was your mother and father. I think of these folks. I think of my mom and my dad first. 
My dad, who spent Saturday mornings on his knees with me, praying with me, reading through books with me, beginning at a, at a young age. I think of my mom, who was called to homeschool me, and she could have done any number of things, but she decided to give her life to me in that way. I think of James Walden, who my junior and senior year of college came alongside me in a time of great growth. I think of Pat Davey and Spencer Mooney, who, when I was working first out of seminary in a church, showed me how to be a father and how to be a pastor to other people. I think of Tim Keller and John Piper and A.W. Tozer, who, like Paul, have never met me, but from a distance have served me so faithfully. Who has it been for you? And are, are you grateful for those men and those women who have sacrificed their time and their energy to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to your life? Would you get on your knees today and thank God for them and maybe, maybe pull out a piece of paper or pull up the email and thank them as well? Second, having been the recipients of the grace of God and known the hope of glory because of those who have given the gospel to you and have been the messengers of the great news, would you be willing to lay down your life in order to bring the gospel to other people? The message of the cross, the message of the gospel is to suffer. Jesus says, follow me, take up a cross. The logo of the Christian life is a cross. Come to Jesus and he will give you peace and a wonderful family. Is that the message? No, the message of the gospel is come to me and be my disciple and take up a cross and make my cross known to the world. Every time you suffer, every time you suffer, you're participating in the great pattern of the New Testament. And here's the pattern. Trouble now, glory later. It's what Paul talks about in Philippians 2 and in Philippians 3, that I may know suffering of Christ Jesus, therefore one day to know his resurrection as well. Trouble now, glory then. Philippians 1 says it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. This is the call of every Christian. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it so beautifully and so clearly. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Every Christian is called to ministry, and ministry, make no bones about it, is a call to die to yourself every day. Think about this as parents. No child ever grows to maturity unless the parents, even in the smallest way, dies to themselves. A woman has to give up her body in order to give you life. A father has to give up his time and his energy to go to work in order to bring home food. They have to give up... A their discretionary time, their Saturdays, their Sundays, their sleep, their youth, in order to raise you up in the same way. This is what ministry looks like. Yes. Some of you, you're involved in ministry and you're going, I don't know if this is something I should be involved in. It's, it's killing me. Yeah. It's, it is killing you. Parenting is killing you. I have gray hairs because I'm a parent. I've gained 30 pounds since becoming a parent. It is killing me, and ministry is killing me as well. Is it killing you? Would you take up that cross and that suffering and say, I'll gladly do so because I know I'm bringing the cross and the message of it to those who need it so badly? You notice here, Paul doesn't simply talk about suffering, but it involves great labor, toil, struggle, labor. Are you working hard with all of your energy? I love the image that Paul gives to us in other places in the New Testament where he, uses, he says this in Philippians 2, 17 and 18, where he calls himself a drink offering. 
Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with, with you. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And in 2 Timothy 4, 16, 7, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What is this drink offering thing? You see, in Old Testament Israel, after they've sacrificed the lamb, they've given this wealthy, these wealthy sacrifices, the things that really cost them a lot, the last thing they would do is they would take a glass of wine, and when that, that, that altar was burning hot and there was flame, they would take the wine and they would pour it out. And what would happen? What happens when you pour water on a hot skillet? And it's gone. The image here is like the stupid saying that coaches give, that we're going to give 110%. <laughs> the Paul's saying, I'm going to give it to my last drop of my energy to be a part of this gospel ministry. Is that your perspective about ministry in your life? Or, yeah, I don't know. Is ministry simply working out of your discretionary time? The 10% you have left at the end of a day and a week, or is it your all? If you're going to be like Paul and lay down your life and die for your children and die for the brothers and sisters in this room and die for the people of Carrollton and die for the man and woman in the cubicle next to you, you've got to have somebody, something that restores you and gives you life. So Paul tells us what the power is for ministry finally. Verse 29, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he most powerfully works within me. How did Paul persevere? The sun will burn out one day, right? The fossil fuels in this earth will be used up, but the power of God can never be used up. And so what Paul says here is that our energy for ministry below comes from above. That we pour ourselves out and we struggle with all of our energy, with the energy that comes from Christ Jesus. This is what Paul talks about as we pursue our own sanctification in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to work what is good to his good pleasure. Paul will not make a dichotomy between our labors and God's sovereign work in our lives. He says God's sovereign work in our lives leads to our toil and our struggle and our labors. And so we must come to understand his power. We must come to understand his strength that he gives to us. Now, how do we become energized? How do we know this energy? In one sense, I, you can't. You can't manipulate God to give you power. But I think there's a rhythm and a pattern that we see in one of our, our most beloved passages in the scriptures. Isaiah 40, verses 28 through 30. 31 says this, and I'm going to we'll go verse by verse. Verse 28 says this, Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. What is it pointing to in verse 28 of Isaiah 40? The power of God. And what does it say that you've got to, and you've got to hear of it? You want to be empowered and energized for ministry as you've got to be in the word and you've got to sit under the teaching and preaching that gives you the power of Jesus Christ that says, look how awesome he is. You will not know the power that lives inside of you until you know him as powerful indeed. And so the first way to be energized for ministry, to know the power of God, is to know of his power, to know that he is powerful. Second, verse 29 says this, he gives power to the faint and to him who has no power, he increases strength. The second way in which you can be energized and empowered for ministry is to become weak. Who does he empower? It is those who have become faint. 
Those who have come to the end of themselves. Too often as Christians, we are wise in our own eyes when it comes to ministry. This is the wisdom of this world when God calls us to be fools. Wise in your own eyes means you can never give up retirement distributions in order to give to causes of God. Wise in your own eyes means we can only have two children because that would extend us beyond our capacity to have three or four. Listen, God is going to give you more than you can handle, and some of you, he is calling you to do that, and you need to take it up. Some of you, it won't be your choice. He'll give you an autistic child. But for some of you, he's calling you, he's laying it before you, he's saying, you need to choose to walk in my path, to extend yourself. And one of the things I talk about in premarital counseling often with couples is they need to come to understand the capacity of one another. All of us have been given different capacities in this life. But far too often now I am hearing about this capacity thing as an excuse for doing nothing. You increase, just like a weightlifter, you increase your capacity by being extended beyond your capacity. By lifting more weights. And eventually you begin to grow and be stronger and stronger. There is grace and we need to be merciful to one another. My wife and I talk about this when we see people who have only one child. And they seem to be really struggling with one child. And we're going, one child? That's a vacation, one child. Once you've had three or even two, you're like, one child, that's easy. You know what you know. That's your capacity. And here's the beautiful truth, is with everything that God calls you to, he gives you the capacity. It brings you to the end of yourself. But when you do so, when you become faint, when you lose all your power, when you're at the end of your abilities, he is there with his power. One final thing. Verse 30, even youths go faint and be weary, and young men shall fall and be exhausted. But they who wait to the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, and they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. What do you got to do? It says there to wait on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord is resting in the work of the Lord. It is stopping and crying out for the power of God. When you stop, when you rest, you heal and you're strengthened. I know it's kind of such a macho, the weightlifting illustration thing again. When you have been pushed beyond your capacity, it breaks down your muscle fibers. And the only way at that, after that point to then grow stronger is you've got to rest. Or else then you do permanent damage to your muscles. But when you rest, what happens when you've rested? You come back even more powerful, even more strengthened. And this is the pattern of the Christian life. Would you... Would you root yourself in the power of God and trust in that promises, the the power of God, this one who is great and mighty, who holds all things in his hands, who is the supreme creator of all things, who is above all and in all and through all, lives inside of you. Would you know that power? Then would you live your life, come to the end of yourself in your ministry, and then when you come to your end of yourself, get on your knees and rest. Not resting by turning to alcohol on the TV. That's selfish, lazy rest. But the less rest that brings you right back into conversation with the God of power. Rest. Resting in the finished work of Christ Jesus. With that in mind, let's go to the table. Where God shows us why we can rest. And those who are serving, you can come forward. The rest of you pray with me this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that this morning we come not upon our own power or our own strength. We come as a people, many of us, 
have exhausted ourselves as parents. We've exhausted ourselves in ministry, in loving a wife that is, a wife that is hurting, maybe, and caring for our family, and reaching out to somebody in our community group, and simply being faithful laborers where you've called us to work. And Lord, we confess we are tired. And we need you to empower us. So we ask that you do that now through this bread and through this juice that represent the body and blood of Christ. Would you spiritually invigorate us and give us life as we remember the truth of what you have done for us. We ask this in the name of your son. Amen.